0: Most voters, a majority of voters, just don't prioritize this issue. I think the people who are passionate about it are getting more passionate. I'm, I, I guess I, I agree a little bit with Shane on, on the reaction to the, the listener's question. I would say I'm sensing more aggressive behavior when it comes to the science and, and more aggressive rhetoric.
1: they are being proved right, and it's not a small sample set.
2: The Democratic Party reverses course on accepting fossil fuel donations. The Trump administration weighs acting on a key global climate deal that is not the Paris Agreement. And are members of the climate movement afraid to address it like a true crisis? We discuss all of this and more with a prominent DC climate and energy reporter. Hello and welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental politics in America. I'm Julia Piper, senior editor at Green Tech Media, and I'm joined by Brandon Hurlbut, our Democrat, partner at Boundary Stone Partners, and former chief of staff at the Department of Energy. We're also joined by Shane Skelton, our Republican, partner at S2C Pacific, and a former energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. And for this episode, the LA-based political climate crew is coming to you from the nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Well, technically, we're across the river in Virginia, and that's because we're also joined by Amy Harder energy and climate change reporter for Axios where she pens the weekly column Harder Line. Amy's coverage includes congressional legislation, regulations, lobbying, international policy actions that are all affecting the United States. She previously covered similar issues for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you for being here Amy. Thank you for having me and for making the trip. Of course, yeah. New perspective over here. Mm -hmm. I never used to go across the river when I lived in DC.
0: Well we have a beautiful view.
2: It's true. It's, monument. It's, it's lovely. Thanks for having us. Brandon, you come back to the district often. What is your favorite thing to do when you're here?
1: Getting pizza with you last night, Juliet. the best pizza restaurant in D.C. Oh, my gosh.
2: Are you doing an All ad purpose? now? All purpose. Oh, my gosh. Did God. you just
3: do native advertising, I think? Is that what happened here? Sure.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Let the record show Brandon may or may not be a partial owner of this restaurant. <laughs> so for this week's show, speaking of food, we're going to cover a buffet of topics Starting with the DNC's decision to once again accept donations from fossil fuel interests. It's just two months after the committee adopted a separate resolution prohibiting donations from fossil fuel companies. Next, we're going to discuss the Kigali Amendment, a global climate agreement key U.S. industry players are urging President Trump to ratify. Next, we address a listener question about members of the climate movement tempering their views on climate change under social and political pressure. To kick it all off, let's talk about the DNC. The Democratic National Committee voted last week to accept contributions from fossil fuel industry workers and their employers' political action committees. Critics are calling the resolution a reversal of a separate measure approved unanimously in June that banned donations from fossil fuel companies and associations. The original resolution barred the DNC from accepting contributions from corporate PACs tied to oil, gas, and coal companies but it allowed the DNC to continue accepting individual donations from workers in those industries. DNC chairman Tom Perez, who sponsored the more recent resolution, said the issue came down to unions, feeling like the earlier resolution was an attack on workers, even though, once again, they could still make donations. Paris said in a statement we have to draw the line that we are indeed a party of a big tent where all working people are welcome. We are not a party that punishes workers simply based on how they make their ends meet. We have been engaging with folks in the labor movement to address their concerns. At the same time we remain committed to the Democratic Party platform which states unequivocally our support for combating climate change. Christine Pelosi the main author of the first resolution and house minority leader Nancy Pelosi's daughter Hope the DNC would consider a second proposal this month to stop accepting contributions over $200 from individuals who work in the fossil fuel industry. That is not advanced. She's also offered an amendment to the Paris measure that would strike the words political action committees to discourage donations from corporate PACs, but that failed. So now the crazy thing is the DNC says they don't even really accept much money from fossil fuel PACs even before this ban came into play. So what is this back and forth all about? Brandon, this is your political party. Why do you think the Democrats would unanimously ban fossil fuel pack money and then reverse course on that? And what does that mean for where the Democratic Party stands on addressing climate change?
1: Well, (laughs) I don't agree with it. Um, It does sort of fit the narrative that the Democratic Party is disorganized. In reality, this isn't going to have much of an impact uh, because, as you noted, most fossil fuel money uh, goes to the Republican Party Um, and the Democratic Party platform where we stand on this policy is still pro climate, unlike the Republicans. Um, But I do think it was a missed opportunity because. I think people think there's too much money in politics, and a lot of these candidates right now, uh, Democratic candidates are having success by refusing uh, corporate and PAC money. You know, Beto O'Rourke in Texas has raised more money than Ted Cruz by taking this pledge. Connor Lamb, who won in Pennsylvania, took the pledge. Most of the uh, Democratic candidates in targeted races this year are refusing that money, and they're raising lots of small dollar, uh, they're raising lots of money from small dollar donors, uh, which is unlike what's happened in the past.
2: So I mentioned that um, Christine Pelosi introduced an amendment to the Perez resolution saying, let's strike the PAC money phrase, and they didn't go for it. So is this the DNC just getting back in bed with this type of PAC money? Like, it doesn't make sense.
1: They're trying to be pro-worker, and I think they're being responsive to some uh, requests by labor. But I I am concerned that some of the folks over the DNC have lost that sort of insurgency spirit where they're okay with taking some political risk. I mean, that's how we won with Barack Obama in 08. We we took some political risk and stood up for what we believed in and said it, you know, very clearly. Um, and I hope that we don't lose that spirit.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think I told you guys a couple months ago, this was really stupid. It's obviously still really stupid. Um, <clears throat> I mean, it's, it's great that they, for the DNC, it's great that they undid the pledge. It just didn't make a whole lot of sense. And I think, you know, Brandon identified certain candidates who have made this pledge and then and then raised money off it and that's fine candidates can do whatever they want to do each candidate has to run their race based on you know the constituency they serve but there are democrats in areas where there's a lot of fossil fuel production there are democrats in areas where a lot of the workers are employed by fossil fuel companies and the idea that a national party is going to dictate that as a party we don't support fossil fuels it's not only stupid, it's politically unhelpful, and I think that um, you know the DNC leadership made the right choice, though, as I mentioned a couple months ago, I wish they continued to make the wrong choice because winning elections is really, really expensive, and if you want to close off one path to that revenue, knock yourself out. It's great for Republicans, but stupid policy. Obviously, they were right to fix it.
0: I have two comments to share. I think one, on on the labor point, I mean, I think this is just the latest in a long uh, string of um tortured relations between the Democratic Party and labor when it comes to energy. We saw that surface in the Keystone XL pipeline fight, for example, when a lot of the labor um, groups were in support of the pipeline uh, for, for construction jobs. And more broadly, I think, you know, there's this, just this division within the Democratic Party about the role that fossil fuels should play. I remember when the DNC first took this step a couple of months ago, I I went to this this document I have a long list of my column ideas and I put this down as an idea to to write about and then I didn't get to it um, in time because now it's been reversed but I think this 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 back and forth is a sign that there's a lot of conflict and there's a you have everybody from Senator Heidi Heitkamp to Uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, although he's an independent, so maybe Senator Markey would be a better example, where those two have very different opinions about the role fossil fuels should play. And so I think this this swinging back and forth is a sign of that conflict.
3: I also think that making these grand gestures is really fun and exciting for a party that plans to stay in the minority indefinitely. But when you want to get serious and you she want to win paying elections, attention to these special elections or what? Were you well, doing? right. And so I think what Democrats are seeing now is they might have a better chance than expected to pick up the House, make some movement in these elections. And their leadership is going, how could we have been so stupid? Let's write the ship and let's get it. Let's get it together before the election.
2: What you're forgetting, though, is that this was to address executive money for the most part. You can make a contribution up to $200. That's
3: just not true. I've contributed. I worked at API and I contributed part of my paycheck to our PAC. I was not an executive and I was not making a lot of money. I think corporate PACs are misunderstood. A lot of people within those companies, including the workers and the low-level laborers, contribute. It's not a bunch of executives piling a bunch of money in. It's just not how it works.
2: Well, the, the point for the DNC stands true that they got very little, they got and get very little money from fossil fuel packs specifically. And I think, to Amy, your point, it is a wrestle, a thing that they're wrestling with of like, should we stand up for our values? If we have a climate action agenda baked into our party platform, is it not hypocritical to then have this other measure that, ar- that allows fossil fuel pack money when it doesn't even really bene- benefit us? What I wonder is even more than the unions, if this became a potential political uh, talking point for Republicans in the election saying look we can point to the Democrats making this symbolic move and we're going to go tell all the workers that they're they're anti-worker more than the unions maybe getting up in arms which clearly was a factor here the DNC acknowledged that but I wonder if they also got a little worried about how this would play in election messaging Brandon do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Oh, well, I think Amy is right that um There's going to be some disagreements on how aggressive to be about fossil fuels within the Democratic Party and um this could be a
3: signal uh, of a of a debate to come but brandon this is not that this is not about fossil fuel policy this is about money from PACs who serve or you know owned or, or formed by entities that produce fossil fuels so the implication of your comment is that if you accept this money you're going to then vote in favor of fossil fuel policy over and over again that's like quid pro quo that's wholly inappropriate And i would expect that the people that you all put on the ballot are more responsible than that i think it was an opportunity to draw a sharp contrast
1: uh, on this, to make the policy fit our values. And um, I think we should have taken it. And you see a lot of these candidates are getting real traction uh, by rejecting this money. And they can continue to do that, right? Yeah, they can.
0: I think with the politics on this is sort of the leading edge and a... Uh, sets the trend for what the policy could eventually be. If the DNC would follow through with the policy that doesn't allow fossil fuel money, I mean, I think that just sets the tone for the Democratic Party going out to the long term. I'll also note that um, I did a story. uh, This is a little bit dated, but I think relevant for our discussion. Uh, It was during the election when I was still at the Wall Street Journal. We did a story about how Hillary Clinton had got more money from the oil and gas industry than than Donald Trump and that's a sign that you know there is support for these Democratic candidates from companies like ExxonMobil even though she was supporting policies that were relative to Trump much more aggressive on climate change
1: yeah I mean the policy of the Democratic Party in the past was all of the above right and but I think that's changing that's going to be an interesting debate going forward
2: well that's what I'm thinking like I think in reversing this the DNC might have underestimated how many people liked that they did this symbolic move and are angry. Like it's all over Twitter, a lot of people on My personal feeds, friends, colleagues are saying, wow, this just looks weak for the DNC and it's waffling. And why not take a stand on something?
3: I wish you were right. Like, I wish they kept this in place because it's just really, really good for Republicans this November. But the type of people who are, you know, lamenting this on Twitter or or causing problems on social media, it's not like they're going to show up and vote Republican because they're disappointed with the DNC. If you're thinking about this strategically, Democrats lost zero votes from this. Absolutely none. The type of people who vent on politics on Twitter show up to vote and they vote Democrat. So they didn't lose anything, but they might have gained some money in the process.
2: I don't know that that's necessarily true. We learned about the 2016 election that people staying home might have tipped the scales. If people aren't excited about the Democratic candidate, then they might just not vote. And that no vote counts, too. I think
0: energy and climate change issues. I think uh, there's there's a subset of people that are incredibly passionate and interested in it. But I think broadly speaking, the polling shows that it's not a top priority when people go to the polls. Of course, that's not the, the sliver of the population we see on Twitter. When I'm on Twitter, I'm constantly reminding myself that this is not the only part where the world operates and lives. There's a whole wide world out there. And so even though it seems like this is what people are saying because it's on Twitter, there's, there's so much more. And so I'm, I'm constantly reminding myself of that, which is not to say, I mean, I do agree that there is much more greater awareness within the Democratic Party in particular, and just people on the left about climate change and, and the influence of fossil fuels, but I still don't think it's going to be a deciding factor this
2: election. That's a fair point. And I think what is interesting about this case, because it is centered on fossil fuels, it does speak to a larger issue among Democrats around, I think, what kind of party they want to be, not just on climate, but around um money in, in politics like Obama got rid of PAC donations he had two campaign two presidential campaigns that he won with no PAC money and the, D- the DNC then reversed that in 2016 so
1: and so many people told us that was the wrong move the establishment said that right but we that took was political all PAC risk money. because we believed in it
2: Exactly. And it worked. And I think people resonated with that. And it feels like the DNC might not stand for or it's hard to maybe distinguish the parties when you see them using the same tactics, whereas I think a lot of people were energized around Obama's decision there. And so it is about fossil fuels in this case and that PAC money. PAC money is just one source of funding. You mentioned Hillary Clinton getting money from other sources. So fossil fuel interests can donate in other ways. And I think what's interesting here is the role of of PAC dollars and and really where the DNC wants to come down on this issue of um, financing.
0: I also think this discussion would be very different if gasoline prices were very high and more people care to engage on this. I think... You know, the data that we look at shows again and again that energy writ large is just not on most people's radar unless energy prices are high. And they've been low for, you know, the past decade thanks to the, the oil and natural gas boom and energy efficiency and things like that. But I think because energy prices are low, it's, it's enabling this discussion, a, a broader and more important discussion about the impacts of these fuels.
2: Well, we'll leave it there on this issue. Um, R.L. Miller, head of Climate Hawks Vote, who's also a member of the California DNC Environmental Committee, uh, she has been on the record saying they're going to push for the DNC to reconsider its position on this fossil fuel pack dollar issue once again at a meeting in Chicago. So we could be discussing this once more if uh, there's a little more back and forth there. I certainly think the California Democratic Party
0: could, will be going much further left on these issues than the national DNC.
1: Thankfully.
2: Next up, the Kigali Amendment. This is an amendment to the Montreal Protocol, an agreement crafted in 1989 to phase out chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs, from use in refrigerators, air conditioners, and other uses because it depleted the ozone layer. The problem is that many countries replace CFCs with hydrofluorocarbons, or HFCs, which turn out to be key climate change-causing pollutants. The Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol was adopted before Obama left office in 2016. Scientists say the agreement may prevent a half-degree Celsius rise in temperature by 2100. For the United States to fully participate in these efforts, the Kigali Amendment has to be ratified by two-thirds in the Senate. The Trump administration has not decided whether to submit the treaty for approval. Shane, you initially brought this to our attention. Uh, Talk a bit about the dynamics at play here among businesses and the politics and how Kigali is playing out among um, Republicans
3: yeah so in my view, this um this deal has been this agreement has been totally mischaracterized as an Obama era climate treaty. If you think about what the Montreal Protocol did, it addressed ozone um, depletion, which was a huge problem. And unlike climate change where carbon exists naturally in the environment and then you can increase you know carbon emissions through human activity, these components do not exist naturally in the environment. So it was very clear to all countries that the ozone layer was deteriorating and humans were the sole responsible parties. It was very easy for the Reagan administration to decide to to group up with, I think 170 some odd other parties and, and fix this. And so they did. And the way the Montreal Protocol works is very different than the Paris Agreement, where the Paris Agreement said, here's your cap on what you can do and figure out how to do it. The Montreal Protocol, instead, um, it rewarded innovation. It basically gave companies the opportunity to invest in R&D, and whoever invested the most and came up with the best product was gonna take a larger share of the global marketplace. Uh, As US companies do, US companies won that race. We've continued to innovate, and we turn over these products uh, multiple times over the last three decades. And so one can say that, yes, the newest iteration of these products that would be um, that would come to light through Kigali would have very positive climate benefits. But that's different than being a, a climate treaty. I think it's actually rock solid industrial policy that has positive environmental impacts and then also has very positive climate impacts. And where I think the the think tanks on the right have got this wrong and I think the Trump administration is going to end up doing the right thing here but I think where the think tanks have gotten this wrong is because it has climate benefits, they need to fight it. And they forget why Republicans were against Obama climate policies in the first place. It wasn't that we want to warm the climate as much as possible. So anything that controls climate, um, you know, emis- or uh, GHG emissions is bad. It was that. We don't want to put U.S. companies, U.S. industry, U.S. workers at competitive disadvantage with our global counterparts solely to serve climate change. In this particular instance, what you get is you put U.S. companies at competitive advantage where we're going to sell innovative, forward-looking products around the world to the disadvantage of our Chinese counterparts and other counterparts. And, hey, it also has great climate benefits. So I think people need to think about this as great industrial policy that gives the U.S. a competitive advantage and is also good for the climate. This is what Republicans have always stood for. When the fracking boom, you know, happened, Republicans said, this is how you solve climate change, right? Industrial innovation leads to breakthroughs that have lower GHG emissions and serve the same purpose. This is that. So I don't want people thinking this is another Obama attempt to, you know, put some you know, command and control uh, system on the globe. This was a Reagan project that Bush picked up and began Kigali negotiations that Obama closed. So this is just three decades of US industrial policy, not an Obama-era climate agreement.
0: I'm pretty sure I've used those exact words in many headlines. <laughs>
3: I wasn't targeting you or That's okay. or I was. You
0: know, I I think about headlines. Number one, I write most of my own headlines, so when you complain about them, you can go ahead and complain to me and I will not blame She's on my Twitter at, uh, no kidding. <laughs> I I do take complaints. I don't often respond. On Twitter, I do I do try to respond to emails. But I mean, you raise a good point. I I struggle with what the headline should be on this policy. It's it is more complicated and has a longer history than the Paris climate deal and it's very different from the Paris climate deal as well but when push comes to shove I have to start with the fact that Obama the Obama administration agreed to it and he framed it that administration framed it in in climate change terms so but I hear you and I think the end at the end of the day I mean it's both it's both an industrial policy and a policy that these these big chemical and manufacturing companies hope to to make a lot of money off of and which they've already invested millions on these new new chemicals millions. right and but it's also a big climate change um, deal as well as as Julia said half a half degree celsius is is a big chunk of the problem so i think it's both and i think i did a column about this recently and it's it's funny i set out reporting it with with an angle in mind as as reporters do and the angle was why Kigali is is so much better off under Trump than Paris but then my reporting actually showed that it's up against uh, some um, scrutiny I would call it um, within the Trump administration as well there's not an outright ref- um, reflexive opposition to it like there was to the Paris climate deal but there is still some administration officials that are are And they're not they're not worried. They're not opposed to it or critical of it because it it addresses climate change. I think they're worried about cost to consumers. And, you know, I think the the backers of this policy are now working on um, issuing studies to show that there is not a great cost to consumers over time. And so I think I certainly think it has a better chance of crossing the finish line compared to, to Paris. But as, as one administration official told me, it has a lesser chance of failing. Which isn't a ringing endorsement.
3: It isn't, but the consumer cost argument, I mean, is is funny to me for a few reasons. One, these chemicals have turned over multiple times in the last three decades. The reason most people don't know that is because it doesn't impact the prices. That's just the reality of it. So the fact that we have a hot political climate these days, where people want to you know hypercharge anything that might impact climate positively, doesn't change the fact that if this wasn't in the headlines, I don't reporters, of course, it should be in the headlines. But if this wasn't in the headlines, no one would ever notice the cost because that just hasn't proven true over three decades.
0: Although I do have a, a personal experience where um, I could have s- dropped $15,000 on a new HVAC system based upon the argument that the technician gave me that this revision is being banned by the, the government and you need to get a new one. Uh, it turned into a whole column. You guys, you guys can read it. Um, but... The upshot was there 's some unscrupulous technicians out there, which you see across the board in, in home maintenance uh, areas and there could be, and I think it 's a minority of cases, but there could be some companies out there trying to capitalize on this turnover of of capital and equipment and so I think that's that 's one of the many concerns that the associations representing air air conditioner contractors and manufacturers are looking at
3: i guess the bigger point to me is that i don't think anyone should comfortably say that as a country we shouldn't do anything at all to address greenhouse gas emissions i think that's an an unsustainable position so the question becomes should we target certain industries and increase their costs um, to to show that we can you know reduce greenhouse gas emissions Or should we find industrial policy that benefits U.S. workers, U.S. manufacturers, and also benefits the climate? I don't know that you can find a better example than this. And so I get frustrated as a Republican who comes on here every week and preaches to you guys that Republicans aren't anti-climate action. They're anti-action that hurts the economy. Well, this is a perfect example of one that solves both problems. And so I'm pretty gung-ho about seeing it through.
2: I think it's interesting to see how the companies, some of which I think backed Trump, are trying to urge him and they're not using climate change in any of the justification. There was a letter from several senators um, that never mentions global warming or climate change but does frame it as this economic development issue, which is, I guess, as you're saying, so it's funny to hear the, or it's interesting to hear just how it's being, how it's being messaged, because as Amy noted, it is a climate policy, but I guess it'll be, uh, I guess no one wants to turn off the Trump administration by Framing it as a climate issue, as we know, he's been very outspoken on that. So it's like a tricky line to walk. I feel,
1: Shane. You know, I thought your the way you distinguished Montreal uh, and the Paris Agreement was like very helpful. Uh, but you said, you know, Montreal is a way to you know help advantage the American worker, and that's why Republicans could get behind it. So with Paris. You this is happening with or without us. Every country's in but us. This is where the world is going. Why wouldn't we set policies here that, why can't Republicans support policies here to advantage American workers to own that market?
3: So I don't disagree with you at all. And I actually think that we should have industrial policy that would, you know, spur more innovation in the clean energy space, that would spur emissions reductions, technologies. We don't disagree at all. I guess the point I'm trying to make is not that that you're wrong and I'm right. The point that I'm trying to make is this is low-hanging fruit. I mean, this is so easy, and, you know. And and you guys talked about the climate messaging, and Obama sold this as a as a climate treaty. But the, the fact of the matter is, when you talk to people who've been involved with this for a couple decades, and I work with some, um, that you know, the, the funny thing is the messaging. During the Bush era, it was so different. And when Obama got elected, apparently Obama staff was reluctant. You know, why would we take up a Bush-era economic policy? We're not, we're not doing economics the way they did it. So people are like, "Oh, no, 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 no! This isn't that. This is climate policy." And so they sold it to him as climate policy. And now, you know, we're going back uh, to the Trump administration. But the funny part is, the messaging is never dishonest. It's always true because it's good economic policy with great climate benefits. But no, you're right, Brandon. It's not that we should only do this and nothing else. It's that. If we can agree on something, let's take that win and then let's move on to something else. Would you get back into Paris if it was up to you? I mean, I'm I, i, I I'm indifferent. I, think, I, I never thought we should have pulled out of Paris because I think that no one is actually complying with it. And it didn't have any. Like, mm, I don't know if that's true. You didn't have to do anything. So I think it was more rhetorical than anything. The U.S. would not have had to take any specific policy action to be part of the agreement. So I think, you know, getting out of it was was a stance that was, you know, a political stance or at least showing there was a campaign promise being delivered on, but I'm not sure that staying in Paris would have required us to do anything and maybe you guys can can better inform me.
0: I think one key difference between the Paris and Kigali policies is that Kigali, you know, companies have invested millions, billions of dollars in anticipation of this transition. These industries have been at the table with their bottom lines for years. You don't see that quite in such an aggressive way with the Paris climate deal. Now, that's not to say renewable energy is growing significantly in the United States, but it wasn't because of the Paris deal. It was because of state uh, renewable portfolio standards. It was because of federal tax policy. It was because of innovation uh,
1: the Obama recovery act the
0: Obama recovery act but it wasn't because of the Paris climate deal so the fact that it wasn't legally binding that the reductions in greenhouse gas emissions were not are not legally binding and that it didn't go to go to the Senate now that enabled Obama to get it past the finish line but that is also proving to be its undoing and it's largely irrelevant um, from a company perspective you saw big oil companies say they support it but their businesses aren't directly impacted by the Paris climate deal precisely because it doesn't have a lot of teeth. So these oil companies, while they wrote a letter telling Obama to, telling Trump to stay in it, they're not knocking on the doors like these CEOs of these you know, Camores and Honeywell are, because their bottom lines are not as directly impacted. Now this may sound, I may sound like to some as, oh, this is just capitalism and, but I'm, I'm just conveying this is how it is. I'm not saying I agree or disagree.
3: Well, and picking up on that point, I think people do really ignore the fact that one of them was negotiated, um, transmitted to the Senate, and ratified, which is what the US process requires. Paris you know, left people feeling um, pretty uncomfortable, even people who might have supported the goals because they ran an end run around. So I think with Kigali, you took the time, in uh, Montreal Protocol, you took the time to get the buy-in from industry and interestingly, in the case of Montreal Protocol and Kigali, the same companies who 30 years ago were manufacturing these chemicals that were harming the ozone layer are the companies who took the capital, that capital, that know-how, and that largesse and invested it in finding solutions. Whereas at Paris, these people weren't brought to the table to talk about how to best implement it, which would have done two things. One, it might have come up with a program that could have actually been enforceable. And two, if industry was on board along with the environmental movement, it could have been submitted to the Senate and it could actually be a treaty.
2: I think there's a few points here. The chemicals industry seems to me like their barrier to, you know, complying with a different regulation is easier. The chemicals is not transitioning to a different chemical is not quite the same as an oil company that has rigs in the ground and drilling massive holes all over the world to then suddenly create a supply chain for solar panels. Like businesses aren't set up to make that transition in a short period of time. So when you're talking about the industry that's being regulated, Of course, oil companies aren't going to wholeheartedly get on board with a massive clean energy plan. Slowly, we're seeing them get investments here and there. But I think these are different issues that have different types of solutions. So that's another reason why... Uh, again, this is different, but on the Paris Agreement, the Obama administration did this sort of end run around because they could get nothing done. In the second part of Obama's administration, you know, they realizing that some of their reach-across-the-aisle efforts had not panned out, as they would describe it anyway, um, they found other solutions, and it was Republican policy to make him a one-term president and to block, block, block. Um, Boehner's been on the record saying that, McConnell McConnell. and others. Exactly. So,
3: So your argument's that democracy is inconvenient.
2: No, that you work within the, the rules. The Republicans and are another- not
3: the rules. If you want it to be enforceable, the rules are you saying, is like back in the nineteen eighties there
1: was like a responsible Republican party in Congress and that does not exist today.
0: I mean I think Obama did you know, what any politician probably would have done. And, you know, even though Trump is is planning to withdraw the U.S. from it, I mean, obviously what Obama has done with Paris climate deal still is having a humongous impact on the debate, right? I mean, Paris doesn't go away because Trump is pulling the U.S. out of it. Um, but I do think that the differences you brought up, Julia, I think are great. Um, and, you know, I, chemicals and HFCs are a much more of, um, concrete issue, as opposed to greenhouse gas emissions, which are, as you say, naturally occurring in the environment and and a much tougher nut to crack.
2: And I think the point about urgency uh, is a good one to get us into our next section, because you know, like it or hate it, I think the Obama administration took action because they felt the science dictated there wasn't enough time to do nothing. And so we ended up with the solutions that we have. But it's a vigorous and good debate that we're about to have about just what the right tact is and what's ultimately going to be the most lasting. Now, let's turn to our constituent services segment of the show where we answer a question from our listening audience. Find us on Twitter and let us know what you'd like us to address in a future episode by following poly underscore climate. That's P O L I underscore climate. Tweet at us there. This show's question is a really good one that I think will touch on some of the themes we raised earlier and take the conversation a step further. It comes to us from Matt Renner, who asked, do people in the climate movement have a secret understanding of the severity of the situation and then temper this when they speak in public? He pointed then to the work by the Climate Mobilization, which describes itself as building a World War II scale response to protect humanity and the natural world. Brandon, I'll go to you first. Um, Do you see members of the climate movement toning down what they say with respect to climate change, even when they understand the stakes, presumably because of social or political pressures?
1: I think this is going to be such an interesting subject for our show over like many episodes. I think I'm thinking so deeply about this. It's, you know, started with Lydia on our show a couple episodes ago saying we have to drive our policies towards 1.5 degrees Celsius. If we don't, We're being totally irresponsible and we're putting everybody at risk. And I'm thinking about, you know, what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is saying. And, uh, And I'm thinking about the New York Times Magazine article. And I'm thinking about the wildfires that are like raging across California right now. And in that New York Times piece, you know, what the scientists said in the 80s, what they predicted has all come true and what they're saying is gonna happen 30 years from now is frightening. And the politics on that are bad, right? I mean, as Amy said earlier, the polling on this is not good, but where do we, we need to be responsible. And maybe we need to have more honest conversation with people about this. And that's where I think I'm hoping to work with Shane on because I would like to do this with the Republicans and I'm trying to find out what's possible, but I'm becoming more concerned than ever about What 2050 looks like, and we're not making any progress. And I don't know, I'm not for half measures, and we're running out of time. So, what can we do?
2: But that I think tees up a very difficult question. If you're not for half measures, which is kind of what we're playing with here and trying to be bipartisan, and what can we do now, nearer term, that everyone can get on board with? If you are truly saying we we need a World War II scale response, Shane, I mean, do you ever see Republicans? getting on board with that, how could that possibly work? If Democrats went all in on such a massive transition, would that just end the conversation, do you think? Yeah.
3: I mean, this is a really, really tough discussion. We started it earlier and we, we stopped because we wanted to have it for the first time here on this podcast. And I think what a lot of people you know, don't really think about too often is that most government policy at the federal, state, or local level doesn't reflect, in any field, the best available science, or the best available economics, or the best available you know engineering, or fill in the blank. That's just not how democracy works. And so I hear what Brandon's saying, and my, my counterpoint, I, I guess, would be a couple of things. One would be, do you want to fight for that wholesale change if the odds of it occurring are absolutely zero? Or are you better off seeing some progress? Because I refuse to accept the premise that doing nothing but being really loud about it is better than doing something that people can agree on. Uh, addressing you know the the question directly, and I'm really interested to hear from the press in the room here with Amy and Julia because I think you guys actually have a better pulse on how this is playing out in, in public. But I think the premise that the alarmism has been too muted is very contrary to sort of what I've experienced, and I think that actually climate has become such a hot button issue on the left that. Other non-climate related issues that run parallel to them are ignored. So I've lamented on this podcast about wildfires. I take it very personally, very seriously. And I think any honest broker has to acknowledge that the climate's changing and that fire seasons are getting hotter, longer and drier, and that creates catastrophic outcomes, but any honest broker can't say, so climate change exists and therefore fires are awful. You also have to say, so what can we do? Well, one, we can address that, but no matter what we do today, next fire season is not going to be okay. You cut out 100% of fossil fuel use today, next fire season is not going to be any shorter or wetter. So what we have to do— the one in 2050 maybe. is going to be— but, Even but, worse than what is going on right now, which is really bad, could and very the hurricanes, well be true. and the heat waves. Could very well be true, but we can't have a myopic focus. So why can't we manage our forest lands? Why can't we do controlled burns? Why can't we let loggers go into these areas and also address climate change? But I think that climate change has become such a myopic focus that we've decided to ignore all tangential issues that could actually provide part of the solution to these problems. And I really want to hear from the media in the room on how you guys view this as being portrayed and whether you think it's too alarming Not sufficiently alarmist or somewhere in between what are they saying behind
1: closed doors? What are the politicians saying to you guys?
0: Well, of course, it depends on which party you're talking about Uh, Let's start with the Democrats. I mean, of course most Democrats uh, in Congress um, Acknowledge climate change is real and say they would support uh, policies on it however beyond that I mean right now things are a little bit different because Democrats aren't in control, but let's not forget that even when Democrats had control of both chambers of Congress and the white house, they could not get a climate bill through Congress. And there was a lot of factors for that. But I think this idea that Democrats are going to hold this policy all on their own and get it across the finish line. I'm very skeptical that will happen. And I think, um, just a slight but relevant tangent, I think this, these midterms are going to be incredibly important to this conversation because, of course, Congressman Corbello, first Republican to introduce a climate bill in almost a decade, is the most vulnerable district in the country. Now, if, if he loses, that movement within the Republican Party, I think, almost starts at, um, at zero, and the Democrats may, cont- may take control of the House. They'll play defense with Trump's policies on rolling back regulations. I don't anticipate a big aggressive climate bill to be at the top of the agenda for democratic for the Democratic leadership. And that's in part because m- most voters, a majority of voters, just don't prioritize this issue. I think the people who are passionate about it are getting more passionate. I think, um, I'm, I, I guess I, I agree a little bit with Shane on on the reaction to the the listener's question. I would say, I'm sensing more um, aggressive behavior when it comes to the science and and more aggressive rhetoric.
1: Because they're being proved right. And it's not a small sample set. Like, let's just talk for a minute here about the math. Here's the math. When Jim Hansen testified in front of the Senate in 1988, he basically said, you know, uh, over the next few decades, the Earth could warm, you know, 1.5 degrees Celsius. That's bad. We can adapt. But it's it's going to be ugly. That's where we are right now. That's why we're seeing these crazy wildfires, extreme weather events. And what they said is true. These extreme weather events have doubled. And they're costing us billions of dollars. But mean, utilities, give me one second. Utilities you know, are going to be bankrupted over this. Look what happened in Texas and Florida. This is not a California thing. Superstorm Sandy uh, in the Northeast. And they say once they double to three degrees Celsius, then we're in a world that hasn't existed in over three million years. And we're heading there that's a math issue and if they're if they've been right for 30 years and they're right again about the next 30 years we have a math problem and we have to design a policy
3: that reflects that math and then let's figure out the politics well hold on though because republicans have been right for decades that if you manage these lands better and you thin out your forest these fires will be less catastrophic secretary zinke was hundred percent right about what he said the fire season is getting hotter, drier, and longer. But the reason the fires are blazing out of control in this long hot fire season is because we're not managing our lands. And he was mocked, he was laughed at. So if we're gonna say, let's address the facts and let's deal with them because they're right, let's address that Secretary Zinke's right, let's give him the authority he needs to clear these forests and then let's also address I think climate. You but you, to also you can't look at one side being right and ignore the other side.
2: I wouldn't. I don't think you can say blanket that anyone who's progressive or Democrat opposes forest management. I know for a fact people are trying to put together forest bonds in California, do all kinds of innovation around managing forests. I think to say that it's just... Zinke being outspoken on forest management would be wrong. A lot of people have been experts in working on this for a long time. I was part of these time. debates for years. The, the thing there what was the that he, he, he mentioned climate change as part of the discussion, right? Saying that the wildfires in California, you know, have nothing to do with climate change. And then I think people jumped on that point and it did maybe distract from a, a more detailed discussion of forest management. But that is the political times that we're in. And that is the headline that you're going to see is that Zinke says the wildfires have nothing to do with, with climate change. And that upsets a lot of people who point to the science and are screaming, saying, let us, let's do something here. Don't I think one part of
0: the issue with with this with this issue of climate change is is that climate change is always a, it's not always in the cases of the wildfires it's a factor it's an increasingly large factor so is fire management it's never it's, it's never as black and white as people often paint it as last year I did a column um while there were other wildfires blazing and and the hurricane season and the title was climate change is like diabetes for the planet Uh, and so you know diabetes is a chronic health condition that people have to deal with it's never like this acute emergency even a wildfire is an acute emergency but that's you can't say climate change is an acute emergency climate change is a chronic problem that will never go away we can only lessen the damages from it. So I think that makes it difficult from a political level. And to your point on the math, on the math, you can do the math, but if you can't get the politics, if you can't get politicians on board, then it doesn't matter what the math is. And I know there's a big school of thought about what's the best path forward on that. But
1: Yeah, I just think I disagree. It, I mean, a chronic condition, it is a crisis. We are altering the atmosphere in a way that is changing so quickly, we're not going to be able to adapt to that. If, if this was happening over hundreds of years, different story, but it's happening so fast. The world that we could enter in 2050 is so different than what we have right now. We are talking about large areas of the United States being uninhabitable and such. How are we going to move all these people? We think we have a refugee crisis right now with what's going on in Syria. Imagine that on a totally different scale. Imagine, you know, the drought's getting worse and the and the wildfires being even worse than they are right now and the harm that will do to our economy and to our society. And so, you know, my question to to all of you is, like, do you think the scientists are wrong?
2: I think this the best science we have is what we have to go on. I think that if you believe in anything in this world, that the research has to stand. But I do think that pointing to the research I don't know is the most effective strategy because it doesn't necessarily land. Someone gets one expert on one side and one expert on the other side. We
1: can get to the strategy, but do do we agree on the math? Amy, do you think three degrees in 2050 is realistic? Shane, do you think that that's where we're going to be?
0: Well, I'm going to do the whole I'm not a scientist line. and And I was at an oil and gas conference last week where I got into it with somebody who dismisses the scientific consensus. And I told him, I don't get my information about climate science from an economist. He was an economist. So I would have to go spend half a day talking to scientists before I am comfortable talking about this publicly. So, you know, I think, regardless of exactly what, you know, I think the math says, I think there's a big problem and the country should be doing more about it than, than what we are. But I don't spend, you know... I don't keep going back to the three degrees and then what and then what does that require because that's a very binary discussion. Um, so I you know I don't focus on that again and again.
2: I think anecdotally there are people that are making life decisions at least maybe on the left um, about whether or not to have kids for instance, because they wonder, you know if the predictions are true, what does that mean for water availability? You know, they see maybe refugee issues coming down the pike. What are the economic implications of all that? And, you know, real people saying, well, wait, should I have a second child? So my first one has a buddy in the apocalypse? Or is this just better off not to put someone else through this pain? Like real discussions that people maybe laugh at. That
3: type of commentary would make me vote against whoever you were voting for. Like I have three kids. I love them all equally. And I'd never say I don't want them to to fall fate to the apocalypse together. I would go, this person's crazy and I can't vote for their policy. Even if it's a great policy because it's so visceral to a parent, That's to not a policy person. That's just about, a,
2: someone saying, okay, if I take exactly what the science is predicting, this is how it kind of has to play out according to that research. So
3: if the question is, do I think in 2050 my three kids will cease to exist because of the apocalypse, the answer is definitively no. I do not believe that. I think they'll have their own kids and I think my family line will go on a long time. If we accept your premise that it's I catastrophic. I say they cease to exist but
1: this is a very different planet that well, causes I mean, an massive, you know disruption.
0: I did a, a story once about how climate change is different from other social movements such as gay marriage or abolishing slavery and one issue is because it affects people so disproportionately i talked to a sociologist at drexel university who said you know w- with gay marriage you have a, a precise category of people who are affected with climate change you know if you're a poor person in bangladesh this is really bad for you if you're a rich person in switzerland or seattle or you, you might be fine You know, maybe not as fine as you would be without climate change, but you're not going to, you know, more likely than not, you're not going to die because you're going to have air conditioning. You're not going to get a heat stroke. So it's so it's just a lot messier than something than a lot of other issues.
3: And I want to I want to address your question spot on, though, because I think I think you're owed that. I guess the question would be, what if everyone here accepts your premise wholesale? Three degrees by 2050. The results are so catastrophic that we're all struggling to deal with it. I still think that raises the The discussion we started earlier, which is what is your solution? Because if you designed a perfect, very thoughtful, very scientifically accurate and impactful solution, and 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 let's say we everyone, every scientist on planet Earth agree that your solution was the best one. We do live in a democracy, and I just don't I can't count the votes. I don't see how you get there. Even if you got you know twenty five percent of Republicans to buy in one hundred percent with you, I, I really feel like trying to find a pathway for agreement politically gets us closer because the point that I've made over and over again is that cap and trade happened in 2009 and we haven't done a damn thing since then because it was a my way or the highway thing. And don't we now look back to 2009 and say, had we found a path that everyone agreed on, we'd be 10 years into this mitigation strategy, and instead we're zero years in. This is where I, I'm
1: so curious as to what's hap- happening behind closed doors with Republicans, because, and Democrats, to the point you know Amy was making earlier about you know, this coming division within the party on this issue. Do you accept, let's just start with the math. Do you accept it? Do you accept the science? Because if you do, okay, we can all talk about the policy. I and We can to, have, have that I don't conversation, know you know, and, and think about what's right. And then we can come up with the strategy to sell it. We have done in this country really hard things in the past. World War II was hard. The Great Depression was hard. Getting to the moon in 10 years was hard. The civil rights movement was hard. But, like, we have done this before, but we're only going to do it. This is what government was designed to do, is to, like, pull people towards collective action to do solve some major Crisis that we can't solve on our own individually.
2: Well, I think that the how you frame it though is going to be so key because if you make it sound severe, to the the listener's question was, are we not talking enough about the severity? At least according to this one article I read, which I want to bring up because it hits it right on. It was in the New York Times recently, talking about. Don't just frame it about the issues, frame about frame it in terms of aspirations. What do we want to see in the future? Not just what are we terrified of, because then it gets everyone's backs up. I agree with that. It said put this is a quote from the article: putting expert scientific narratives at the center of a decision-making like non-negotiable environmental limits rather than focusing on opportunities for collective betterment has only led to increasing divisions over which experts to trust. And I think there's something to that. So I don't know how exactly this gets done, but maybe focusing more on our shared values uh, and how that affects the climate movement might be better than just screaming our heads off and talking about the severity, but that's a difficult line and I don't know how it that's plays out. That's
1: we're up. trying to figure out on the show is can we find something together that we can go sell to the American public together? And I think an aspirational part of this is important. You know. If we do these policies, the type of policies that, you know, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez is suggesting, um, or, you know, the the folks that emailed us on uh, on the show, there's a lot of benefits. There's a lot of upside. It'll be hard. But the things that come out on the other cleaner air, lifting people out of poverty, good jobs, that's going to be really exciting. But what if it's all a hoax? And if it it wasn't all those things happen?
3: (laughs) then it wouldn't matter. That's the great thing. If it's good policy, then it actually doesn't matter. And I think, you know, we've been so fortunate on this podcast to have So many great guests recently that we've wanted to take advantage of that but we have promised and we will fulfill the promise that one day we are going to show up and we're not going to debate how many votes you can get we're both going to bring our best approaches to good u.s policy that would make the changes necessary to mitigate the worst impacts of climate change and then we'll have some fun because we'll debate but it'll be a fun debate because we're both trying to get to the same goal so we are going to do that for our listeners we promise and and we will find these positive solutions
2: amy i want to give you the final word on this discussion Well, your comment about the shared
0: values uh, reminded me of one of my favorite scoops uh, of mine this year so far, um, as I got the scoop on uh, Pope Francis convening a meeting with big oil executives. um, BP, Exxon, uh, the CEO of BlackRock was there as well at the Vatican. And yes, of course, your former boss, uh, former Secretary of Energy, Moniz. And that, that meeting to me was significant because and I'm of the mind that whether you like the oil companies or not, they have to—they're going to have to be at the table for some sort of solution because they're a political force to deal with. Um, and I think this—you know—the title of this meeting was about a shared path forward for the planet. It was similar to his 2015 encyclical, along with a whole host of other issues. I'm really focusing on this area of the quieter um discussions that are happening you asked about what's happening what republicans are saying behind closed doors the conversations i've had is most republicans in washington those elected to congress acknowledge the science i think there's a whole host of people outside of congress that continue to to question the science. But it goes back to, it's just not a top priority for their districts and their constituents. And I think, and that's really unfortunate because it is is a big issue, but I think it it goes back to that. And so I think ultimately some sort of policy on climate change will be a mix of urgency from companies that might be facing lawsuits, for example, on liability, and also partly from the masses in a sort of cultural movement, but I think you know, particularly with Trump in office, I think Republicans are getting a little bit louder about it as a way, ironically, to differentiate themselves from the president. But I think for now, it'll be interesting to see how the midterms go. But I think we'll continue to see the rhetoric on the left get louder as solutions don't surface. And I think we're going to unfortunately be in this sort of
2: this area, this place for the indefinite future. There can't be enough Alexandria Arcasio cortez is elected in time to institute a Great Green Deal.
1: But I'm so thankful
3: for her because she's speaking the truth and she's not afraid. You guys all know we're talking about someone who won a primary, right? Like, I just want to I just want to reiterate, we're, we're acting like someone is, is now the president of the United States. She won a primary in Queens. No small feat. I mean, I certainly did not win a primary, <laughs> but, but nonetheless, which was
0: my point. Like, <laughs> Again, I don't think her policies would ever pass Congress.
3: Well, then
1: we're doomed. Boo. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Oh, this is the point of the show where we make everyone say something nice. Brandon, what do you got?
1: I have a special shout out for the secretary of energy, the current secretary of energy, Rick Perry. He finally said what the truth that Republicans refuse to say. Here's his quote. The government's been picking winners and losers since government was created. Truth. We do it by tax policy. We do it by regulation. We do it by permits. Pick Good. Be smart. Use the right kind of technical people to help you decide where to invest and pick the winners. Pick them right. Government's going to continue to do that. Thank you, Rick Perry.
2: And now we can all look out for the coal and nuclear bailout. It all depends on how you define good. but I
1: would say
3: saving the planet is good.
2: Well, I don't think that's
0: how Rick Perry defines it. Shane, what do you got?
3: So I am excited. Uh, a few episodes ago, um, I talked about Senator Martin Heinrich and his bill that would allow um, young students free access to public parks. I think it's a really important part of their education. We have been so fortunate as to have Senator Heinrich agree to come on a future episode. So I am very excited about that. I'm really looking forward to hearing his perspective in a state like New Mexico that actually has a ton of clean energy access. And I'm uh, really grateful to him for doing that. So uh, that, that's my say something nice. I'm very excited about Senator Heinrich and uh, incidentally, my partner Scott uh, is on the board of the National Park Trust, and he had the opportunity to be at a meeting where they presented Senator Heinrich with an award recently and just didn't have enough good things to say about him. So I can't wait to meet him, and I'm I'm so glad he's coming on.
0: Amy, do you want to weigh in on this? I have something nice to say as well. Um, one of my, my goals as a reporter is to Constantly strive to have conversations whether it's a podcast or interview with people that I don't 100% agree with because there's so much of that in Washington and around the world conferences are hosted where everybody just agrees with each other and it's a waste of time and money. Um, But this conversation was so great because we we have sort of a a set of commonalities right we don't dispute the scientific consensus on climate change but there's some things we disagree with and I think that's great and I think it's conversations like this that um, are worthy of our time. And Axios means worthy in Greek. So that was my shameless pitch. It's Axios, not Axios. I I always pronounced it correctly. I looked it up before I was hired. I Googled how to pronounce it. And then I asked my editor, how do you pronounce it? And he was like,
2: "Uh, I don't know. And then it took a while for us to all agree, but it is Axios. It is Axios, officially, in case you guys are wondering at home. Uh, Well, thank you so much, Amy, for coming on today. Thanks for hosting us here at the Axios offices. Shane Skelton, Brandon Hurlbut. I'm Julia Piper. This is your political climate team. Find us on Twitter, Polly underscore Climate. Tweet at us for future topics you want us to cover. And listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. Tune in. Find us everywhere you listen. Like it, subscribe, and tune in next time. Hey, tweet us if you want.